Hey, fans, I hope you're all enjoying the program tonight. You will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death praying for war. If you're not inside, you are outside, okay? Sir, I heard it was the best, sir. It is the best. The only problem you're going to have is that you didn't buy more. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another week. Kyle, how has your week been? It's been pretty hectic. Um, had a, you know, just like with kids and everything, it's kind of nonstop. Um, we had our son dedicated on Sunday. But really great weather here in Texas. Kind of just day drank on my patio the entire Sunday. and It was, re- it was really good. But this is a really busy week for work. Um, I'm helping lead this huge conference at work, so. So uh, in addition to my regular duties, I have this on top of it. You actually, you actually do have a day job. Yeah, that's, you know, it's testament to my, my ship posting talent that I can do that and, you know, remain uh, uh, productively employed. You can, you can do both. Um, yeah. You were, when you started sit reps, were you in the reserves? No, I wasn't. You did the reserves for how many years post act like post active duty? I did it two years uh, during my MBA program, and then um, when it was uh, time to you know go get a you know a job right or you know go I, I got a, you know I was going to go into consulting after my MBA. I was like, no, absolutely not. I am not going to be Monday through Thursday traveling and then go for a three day drill weekend. Uh, like just it, it just was not in the cards you know um and uh, yeah you know did two years and you know i'll be honest like it, going from active duty active duty to the reserves is a, is a shock for a lot of people and it was a shock for me it's just you know there it's 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 just not it's not active duty right you know so but yeah. it, it is interesting to see it's a good deal if you you know you can make it work yeah, for the, the variety of stories that I hear from people in reserves. I mean, people can go and watch the video we just did with Ed Kennewag yeah. about his time in the Navy reserves. Very interesting stuff. But the and the variety of stories that you hear from people in the reserves, everything from like, I did two years of barbecues to I deployed. And, you know, the, the, the three soldiers that were just killed in Jordan were reservists. And... Yeah. You hear all sorts of stories. So yeah, anyone that's thinking of joining the reserves, definitely diligence your unit, right? Um, it's so, it's so tough, and I think it depends on your MOS, like how low density your MOS is, like how in demand uh, it is, right? And you know, it's tough to predict what's going to happen. I mean, there's a lot of critical like specialties in the reserves, and that yeah. you know, get deployed and or you no know, get used, and then like you know they're. You're, you know, the reserves aren't the National Guard, but they do have a, I think it was like a DSCA mission, you know, as well. So I, I, yeah, like a lot of things in the military, your, your experience may vary. Yeah. Your, your mileage may vary. Well, we'll jump in this week and we want to talk about four main things. Uh, the first is Chinese cranes and why we should all be worried about the situation at our ports. Uh, the second thing we're going to be talking about is the insanity with NVIDIA. So kind of breaking down, everyone's hearing about NVIDIA, but what do they actually do? And and why is their stock so high? And then we want to jump from that into talking about exactly how you can think about 
why stocks are priced the way they are. And then lastly, we'll, we'll tie up with a discussion from the weekly sit rep and talk about consultants, why you should or why you should not be a consultant and the value that they may or may not add to the economy overall. So first, this Chinese cranes story. We, we've learned that the U.S., part of the infrastructure bill that was passed last year, that big kind of bipartisan bill, $20 billion of it has been assigned to help build large industrial cranes, largely for ports. And the concern is China. So from, from what you're reading, why should we be concerned about cranes made in China at our ports? What's the worry? Well, I think like a lot of, you know, pieces of uh, technology today or, you know, anything, you have like cars, trains, uh, planes, cranes, right? They're all networked, you know, they all they all have uh, information systems in them. And so what, what this article brings up is that essentially like these cranes have been made in China, right? And, you know, like I said, like they're, they're, they're networked, they have information systems, they can like identify uh, like the sort of cargo they're picking up, right? They can be remotely like updated. They can be like, they can have diagnostics done on them remotely. And so the concern is that like back doors have been like built into these, in these cranes that are all these major ports. And in the event of some sort of confrontation between China and the U.S., right? This would be like a lever the Chinese could pull to basically disrupt the ability of the U.S. to, you know, do commercial shipping, military movements, et cetera. Like, like, oh, my gosh, like all the cranes of the ports have gone down. Right. Or they're malfunctioning or, you know, they're, you know, or it, almost even worse. Right. You know, like they're they're working, but we think that they're able to transmit back to the, you know, the yeah. PRC exactly like, you know, troop movements and like material that's being like loaded and stuff. It's well, crazy. I thought it was crazy. You think about, I, I mean, I thought about in Anchorage when we went to JRTC, um, you know, down in Louisiana, we put all of our vehicles on boats in the port of Anchorage and we loaded all those, you know, we, those boats went down through the Panama Canal and, and wound up in Mississippi and mm -hmm. they offloaded them. Um, similar though, if like you, you know, if we have, if we have boats that are headed over to Kuwait or you know, if Taiwan ever popped off and we had to send stuff, right? The thing that was the scariest was that China would be able to know exactly the cargo, right? They wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't even need to be shutting it down, but they could say, oh, look, like we know exactly the cargo that they're putting on these boats. We know the weights, we know the types of vehicles, we know where they're going, when they left, when they'll be there. And, and the next bet, you know, the next thing they could do is just shut it down. So the amount of, the amount of knowledge that, that these cranes, you know, that you don't even really think about it, but that these cranes are submitted, you know, submitting over to the PCC or the CCP, excuse me, is, is pretty terrifying. And yeah. I think, I think kind of like, you know, makes you wonder what else we have that's here in the U S that we don't even think about that could be a huge strategic advantage for, for China. Yeah. And just so the idea that like there's this huge effort to basically like replace all these cranes with homegrown cranes, right? You know, it's just it's it's crazy, right? And I mean, it's it's just crazy to think about, and it's like that level of like uh, diligence being applied to like hey, along you know, 
every aspect of you know the 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 u.s like you know vector the, the vectors that somebody could attack the u.s right like like think about it and it's just like where are the vulnerabilities at yeah um, i mean it's, you, it's it's wild you could shut you could shut down the u.s economy if you wanted to right yeah. with with even even shutting down we really have two ports that we're able to bring a lot of stuff into the the one is long beach and i think the other is houston um but, but but our port capability is actually pretty pretty poor in relative terms to other countries that was something that i think covid really demonstrated there was that huge supply um issue that we faced and a uh, big thing that it showed us is that our ports are not up to par that we kind of are are you know we we have a long ways to go so hopefully this you know this kind of spurs some growth the difficult thing is um I mean, there's a reason we have all these chains from cranes from China, right? It's not because like China forces us to buy them. It's because it's really hard for American firms to make cranes. Like we don't have that domestic capacity and that's why we have to invest 20 billion. But, you know, the worry is also like, you know, we hope that with $20 billion of incentives that we can build these cranes, but like, America doesn't build a lot of stuff anymore, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's, um, this is like kind of a, a, a tangent, right? But way back in the day when the Matrix came out, like the, the final Matrix movie, they released like a series of like animated uh, shorts for the Matrix, right? Yeah. Um, and like one of them, like basically like talked about the rise of the machines in the Matrix. And it was, uh, you know, or the, the rise of the machines that led to like this conflict between um, humanity and the machines. Right. And like, basically what happened is like these machines got like super good at producing really cheap goods for people to buy. So people were like driving like like cars that were being produced by like, you know, the machine race and everything. Right. And then like they're and they were like using like ways to like manipulate the market against humans, like just by like using humans own like uh, natural tendencies and like self-motivated like incentives to like, you know, they want things that are better, cheaper, you know, um, as like as like a lever to like use against them. And you almost kind of look at it like that, like you know, comparing like the Chinese to like machines or whatever, but they're doing the same thing. It's like, hey, we'll make stuff that's really good, really cheap, and then put back doors in it uh, as a way to, you know, take advantage of the fact that America's economy is decentralized, right? And people and you know you're allowed people are allowed to make individual purchase decisions. So Yeah. I mean you think about with Taiwan, right? We we're kind of like anxiously watching. Xi clearly would love to take Taiwan if he can. Um, that's a yeah. discussion we could dive into for another time about the complexities of Taiwan and and a large portion of the island of Taiwan would would be you know open at least to overtures from China. But like, man, if China wanted to like take Taiwan and they just said, hey, you know, if you defend Taiwan, we'll just shut your ports down for the next year. Like, you don't have cranes, you don't have like you don't have machines. We'll just shut your entire country down. And, um, you know, how quickly would poli you know, political opinion right now or public opinion right now is very supportive of Ukraine, of Ukraine, of Taiwan, excuse me. But what would, what would happen if everyone suddenly realized, you know, not just like that your iPhone couldn't get there, but like your x-ray machines, your MRIs, your mm -hmm. medical supplies, you know, um, it's not just toys that come via ports. Um, so it, it could be very... It'd be very difficult. Um, 
you know, so there was there were several interesting Chinese articles. There was another one about their their surveillance state that basically said like 1.3% of people in China are are surveillance assets for the state. And there's yeah. like there's like zero percent, there's like zero trust in that society. Cause literally the chance is like one in a hundred that the person you're talking to is an informant for the CCP. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 a little older than Wyatt, right? You know. And so I, you know, I remember the Berlin Wall falling. Uh, I, was, I was very, very young. Yeah. Um, but like yeah. for those, for you know, like when the Soviet Union was around, you know, and they had like West and East Germany, and the, and the part that the Soviet Union controlled, they they had informants basically all throughout that part of Germany, right? And like the the Stasi, uh, the, the the police that that ran that area. Yeah. And they would, they would they would basically like your neighbors would like snitch on you, right? And so it's like a way for like a totalitarian like dictatorship to basically control its people is to sow distrust among the people who live there, right? So people are afraid to speak out. They're afraid to organize. They're afraid to have dissenting opinions. Exactly. Um, and this is this is part of what China does, right? Uh, and they, don't, they don't just do it in China. They do it. Uh, yeah. A big portion is there's a massive reporting element among every Chinese student at a university that a lot of universities actually won't even put Chinese students together in classrooms because the Chinese students will never comment because they're terrified that the other one, you know, if they say anything that could be construed as pro-American, pro-Taiwan, you know, pro anything that the CCP doesn't want, that they'll report on them and that their family will be punished. Yeah. So they find a way to like exert control, you know, in other countries. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, I think there's stuff that came out like a while, like I want to say it was like a year ago or something, but I, I can't put my my finger on the exact time. But they were like, the government was like going around, and uh, the U.S. government was like shutting down like secret Chinese like police stations in the U.S. or something. Yeah, I remember that. There was one in there was one in San Francisco that got shut down. Yeah, it was like, no, this is not okay. Yeah, there's allowed to do this. There was um, I mean, there's there's students at Wharton, man, that like. <laughs> that they're they're from china and like they'll never comment in class and there was there was one last year he's a second year student so graduated now that was in one of my strategy classes and they were talking about um there was a class it was a strategy class about china or there was a there was a, a class that was talking about walmart's entry to china and the, the teacher was like hey what do you think you know chinese student and the chinese student kind of gave this like very party line answer didn't really want to do follow-up answers and the rest of the class never spoke. Mm -hmm. And, a, you know, one of the students was like, oh, man, like, you know, that kid, like, you know, I wish I could have debated that kid. And I was like, dude, that kid might not have agreed with anything that he just said, but he can't say anything. Like, he's completely yeah. hamstrung by his regime. So, oh, man, it's it's very difficult to see, you know, to see mar free market and free ideas grow in a society where no one can trust each other. And... um you know, we just need to we need to make sure that we're being careful uh, here in the U.S. So I hope I hope we get those cranes built fast. It's going to take a while, though. Yeah. Yeah. So. So speaking of uh, tech that we are able to build um, or that we're hoping to build um, NVIDIA, they are the hottest company in the world, I think, right now. What do they even do? Uh, they build. GPUs, graphical processing units. So for those of you who 
are not in the know. Um, you know, graphical processing units are basically specialized um, uh, specialized uh, computer chips, right? That allow for the computation of really complex uh, um, math that, you know, allows for the display of like advanced graphics on anything, right? Could be like, yeah, the where did they, they started as a video game company, correct? Because the, well, the video yeah. game graphics are very, it involves a lot of matrix math. And it's, but, but this, yeah, but yeah, this, this, this is, this is the point though, right? They, they, they make GPUs, right? And so right. like, yeah, they, they started as like, um, they, you know, they started as a, you know, they've been around for like 30 years, right? And they right. started making um, computer graphic cards, right? Like back in the day, right? You know, like, I, I feel like I keep dating myself, but like when <laughs> I was growing up, you know, you'd have like, I remember going and getting like video graphic cards, right? And be like, oh, this is the Voodoo 7X, right? And I'm going to go put it in the PCI port of my computer and it's going to like supercharge my gaming experience. And I'm going to be able to like play Mech Warrior or something like, like who, like who knows, right? Like if I forget even what, what it was, but it was like, it was like super cool and exciting, right? And like, I'd you'd go to like the, the video game store in the mall and get it. And so these, the, this company was building these, right? And like, what they've realized in the in the past few years is that their their GPUs are perfectly suited for um, AI, right? Right. Uh, because well, they, they, they realized now. it fascinatingly. They realized it largely because some some medical uses were like, "Hey, can we use these video game chips?" Like Nvidia didn't see the opportunity at first themselves. These mm -hmm. medical companies said, "Hey, these can do incredibly complex functions. I think these would work for our." medical operations and then jensen wong he's the the ceo he's been the ceo for 30 years he was the founder and ceo i mean the man is going to be he could be the most the most wealthy man in the world uh shortly uh it wouldn't shock me if like in five years he was but um he's been the ceo for 30 years which is pretty like that's amazing yeah, that, that isn't that that isn't that is not the the, the normal trend for silicon valley ceos so. no and, you know, there's like a million different, you know, there's like a million different profiles being written about this guy. But if, apparently he says like he doesn't make strategy plans, like he doesn't plan for the future. He just kind of like. Yeah, he has, sure like, he has like a radical like decision making or governance structure. And um, yeah, he, he doesn't wear a watch because he said the most important time is now. Yeah. So he's um yeah. So, the, yeah, it's it, it's interesting company that, you know, what's interesting about NVIDIA, right, is like. The way the way the analogy would you that that I've heard that makes a lot of sense for for folks who maybe are not totally familiar with it is, you know, everybody wants to mine for gold right now, and gold is AI, right? And so Nvidia is selling the pickaxes for that, and right? You, you can't you can't do it without uh, their their graphics cards essentially, right? Um, so so yeah, to to kind of finish the loop there, they were using these. GPUs, yeah, for medical, for video games, and then they went and they started using them for AI, right? Because mm -hmm. AI requires this incredibly complex, large language model, a lot of the matrix math. Um, so why why are they so valuable right now? Why are they the company, and and why not someone else? I mean, why is it why is why is it so hard for other companies to come in and uh, take their market share, right? Yeah, I mean, like computer chip manufacturers are extremely comp complicated, right? There's only a few companies in the world that can do it reliably uh, and at scale and produce computer, um, you know, produce these sort of, uh, you know, cards, computer chips that are um, 
you know, specialized in nature, right? Like it's not, um, you know, you look like Apple, Apple tried to like produce like its own computer chips. They basically tried to create their own, like, uh, like, you know, vertically integrated supply chain. They weren't able to do it. It was too hard. Like think about Apple has unlimited money. It's smartest yeah. people in the I world. Saw, I, I saw that Google and Amazon have started to make like complementer chips, but they've even emphasized like, Hey, we're not competing. Like, yeah, it's, it's just it's just it's just too hard to do, and it re- it's like a really specialized skill set, and it requires like in- enormous investments of like capital, uh, and like design and like research, right? Like they're building these um, these fabrication plants up here uh, north of Austin, and like Samsung's building them, right? And it's all like very like custom, you know? They and it's just like it's very like the like it's it's just not an easy thing to do, right? Like you're literally like building. T- teaching rocks how to think you know so yeah, it's, um, like, it's and, like we talked about earlier it's not even with all the money in the world right like it's not it's not as easy as just being like hey go go do this yeah yeah um and so you know for nvidia right they've, they've come up with, like really specialized gpus that are perfect for ai and they don't you know they don't have like really any competitors right now that can match them at scale or you know their architecture or the ability for them to be you know used in these sort of applications but, you know, that doesn't mean people aren't, you know, companies are not going to try, right? Because they see the market opportunity. NVIDIA can't keep up demand. Like Elon Musk said like a year ago that it was, you know, easier to get drugs than it was to get, you know, NVIDIA GPUs, right? Because they're so, yeah. they're so in demand. Well, they're tw- they're, they're, sales were really fascinating. They, they have, the chips sell for about 25K. Uh-huh. And... Most of their business came from, you know, they're not going to publish exactly, you know, who's who they're getting their sales from, right? That's um, that's kind of privileged information. Yeah. But it's like five companies make up, I think it was like 60% of their sales. And, and you can kind of assume like AWS, right? That's going to be probably a, a main one. Probably Google, right? They're building Gemini. They probably have, you know, OpenAI, um, well, OpenAI, not, OpenAI wouldn't actually be, um, I'll correct that because they're, I think they're using AWS, right? Um, or Azure, OpenAI would be using Azure, right? Yeah, that, well, that, that's one reason why Microsoft, basically, it was a huge investment, right, for them to be able to leverage Microsoft's uh, cloud right. network right. or, so or for, cloud capabilities. Right, so forget that I said OpenAI and um, AWS. Yeah, so the, it, OpenAI is on Azure, Azure, AWS, Google, um, these are all companies with big cloud computing sources and the cloud computing, uh, allows them to, um, you know, run these uh, AI models. So open AI is, you know, running their AI models on, on Azure. Um, what's amazing, what's really amazing though, is not just that, that they have these, you know, this incredible market share that they, they have, I think it's like 80% of the, the market is controlled by, by, um, by NVIDIA, they have a 76% operating margin on, or gross margin on a hardware company. Why yeah. is that, like, explain for listeners why that's so unbelievable. Uh, I mean, well, it, it, it's just, you know, they're selling these things at a huge markup, right? You know, but like the input costs to make uh, a computer, you know, a, a GPU, right, are immense, right? There's a huge pipeline of like capital expenditures that have to occur, right? They got to like, you know, right, build the plants, you know, they have, you know, R and D is not part of capex, right? But like they have, 
there's all these expenditures that go into it and then be able to sell that sort of markup is like tr truly incredible right especially for such a complicated and advanced thing that shows like the demand yeah uh, and they can't they can't fulfill their orders i mean jensen yeah. wong's like i can't i wish i could make twice as many chips yeah yeah so you know it's um it's just like a supply and demand issue right uh you know but like like as as jeff Bezos has said you know, Jeff Bezos said, your margin is my opportunity, right? And so, like, they, in fact, they have all this margin, right? So, like, AMD is going to come in, you know, uh, you're going to have... Saudis like, want to make some. Like, the Saudis yeah. are, like, trying to petition. They'll, they'll, like, they've been giving, like, five times higher, like, insane valuations to semiconductor startups to come, oh, to come, you know, or at least let the Saudis invest, um, which is kind of yeah. insane, but, and, and maybe that'll work. I don't know. I don't... I, like yeah, like yeah, you have you have all these other entrants who are gonna like you know there, there's money to be made, right? So they're gonna they're gonna figure out how to do it. And like the growth that what what I think is important for folks to maybe understand about all of this, right? Is this isn't like a moment in time, right? This isn't like this is going to pass. Though um, you know, one could make the yeah, argument. This isn't a bubble. Like this isn't this isn't like <laughs> GPU bubble, right? Yeah. So like, there's there's two ways to look at it. Uh, semiconductor manufacturing, right? Chip manufacturing can be cyclical in the sense that companies will buy all of these, um, you know, chips, all these semiconductors, right? And then they'll be a digest, they'll, they'll digest it for a period of time, right? They'll have like, they got to take it, they got to integrate it, they got to use it, they got to like build stuff on top of it. And then when they're, they're ready to do the next thing, okay, like what's the next advanced chip that we can do to then like push the, you know, envelope of like what we're building? Um, so like there, there's a threat of that to like, you know, NVIDIA's business, right? But, you know, when you look at AI, right? Like we're just at like the very beginning of it, right? Like the iPhone moment, but it's for AI now. And uh, this isn't like a technology. It's not like crypto that's like a bubble. It's like something that's gonna like rapidly change the world here in the next 10 years. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when you think about like evaluation, like stock valuations, they're the, you know, present value of future free cash flows, right? It's investors saying like, hey, let's look at the future free cash flows in the future, you know, so explain and explain what what exactly is a future free cash flow is and different from just a revenue. So what yeah, are I mean, just looking at yeah, you know, revenue minus all your expenses, right? And then right. you know, depending depending on how you want to calculate it, right? You want to say right. like EBITDA, which, or whatever, you know. But which, you as know. you look forward, the 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 assumption with any business is that as you innovate, your cost will go down, right? So it's like if you have you know, if it, or or generally, right? If you have this process that's hardware, right? You're you're probably going to find better uses, you know, better materials. You're probably going to find, um, you know, there's probably going to be more people that enter the labor market. Your labor becomes cheaper, so your cash flows like will will start to go down. And the worry, if you're Nvidia, is like you said, someone will come into the market and say, "We're going to make this cheaper and compete you down on price." Yeah, so, you know, they'd say, so, like, folks would say, oh, they have a $2 trillion valuation. It's super rich, right? They have to, like, grow into the valuation, right? Because I think it's 30x, 30x the yeah, revenue. 30x price to earnings, right? So, you know, like, whatever, you know, your, you know, the current price of the stock is divided by their, you know, their earnings, right? So, essentially, like, free cash flow. And uh, and so, when it's, like, super, when, the, when the multiple is super high, right, like, you know, basically saying like there is a there is a lofty expectation that the company is going to be able to grow over the next few years into this valuation, and investors want to see that growth, so they they have a high expectation for growth here. Um, 
And so the argument is saying like, oh, you know, like it's the stock is overvalued, you know, but then people say, well, like, is it right? Or is like, is the AI boom going to be so great that it's actually cheap right now because they literally are going to have to grow this much, you know? Right. Like, they can't, like, they can't meet their, their, their demand. Yep. So, you know, it, and it's just, it, it, you know, valuations are like both an art and a science, right? You know, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to like, see like this talk, right? And it's like, okay, they're a $2 trillion company now. They have a very lofty valuation. But like, if you really believe in the AI boom, you really believe like, you know, in the next 10 years, like there's going to be this massive increase in productivity. The economy is going to grow because, you know, we'll unlock like, you know, productivity bottlenecks, right? And there'll be an increasing demand for, a, you know, AI and the chips that power it, right? And you're saying like, it's actually, it's kind of cheap right now because, you know, these these guys are going to be in huge demand to produce all this hardware that's going to basically power the, you know, the, the next great jump in uh, technology. Yeah. So I guess so, it's like, yeah, it goes back to the pickaxe analogy. Yeah. So I think it's interesting, you know, we, we, we promised people we'd kind of walk them through some of the ways to understand this price, right? So... NVIDIA's stock price right now is, is $787, right? That's over the last five days, it's up 16%, right? Because their earnings came out and their earnings were higher. Um, yeah, they, yeah they, 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 they did very well in earnings and, and the expectations were super high from analyst expectations. So. so over the last five years, <laughs> NVIDIA has increased 1,900%. Just it, in, insane. In the last year, it's it's gone up two hundred and forty percent. One inch, like the the interesting thing I think about finance is when you're thinking about investing in a market, a lot of people want to day trade, right? Or they want to go and say like, "Hey, I think I know something about Nvidia." Um, the the reality of any kind of stock is now Nvidia. Like the most amazing thing about it continuing to continuing to exceed expectations is. Now its growth has been priced in, right? So can you explain kind of like how does a Wall Street analyst, like when we look at the prices here, this reflects the public market price. How does an analyst go about, you know, determining, hey, like what should we, you know, what will this, what will the expectations be? So people always talk about, you know, revenue expectations or Wall Street's expectations, right? It outperformed. What are people talking about when they're saying that? Yeah, I mean... What, what what they're what they're thinking about right is there's a variety of different metrics they can use you know so you'd have like price like we talked we just talked about price to earning ratio right and so because it's like it's kind of hard to compare like this stock you could say like this stock is worth this much and this stock you know this stock is worth a thousand and this stock is worth you know a thousand right a thousand dollars a share or you could say a hundred dollars a share maybe like make it a little more real you know, but like, there's a lot of things that go into that, right? You know, you talk about like market cap, number of shares outstanding, you know, et cetera. So it's tough to like, like compare like apples to apples, but like what, what you, you can use at least and somebody, an analyst would use, right. Is they would look at like these different um, like models, right. So you could have like price to earnings ratio. There's like one, it's like, Hey, like the price of the stock over the earnings of the company. Um, you could have a price to book ratio. Right. And so that's like, a company's stock price by its book values, book values, which is a measure of its total assets minus total liabilities, right? Just on its balance sheet. Um, you could have uh, the equity risk premium, right? So, you know, it's like basically the reward for owning the stocks over risk-free government bonds, you know? Well, it depends on who you, 
anybody's going to depends on who you'd say if the government's bonds are risk free. I say they're risk free. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. If I mean, it's like it's like um, my finance teacher here said, if if the government bonds, if the U.S. government bonds have defaulted or they no longer worth anything, your stocks are useless by default. Yeah, which is why why people get so freaked out about the right. the, the you know it's it's kind of like. It's kind of like shorting the possibility of a nuclear war. If you're right, you make money. And if you're wrong, you don't need money. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh. the, the other one is like price to earnings growth ratio. Um, it's called the PEG, right? And it's the, the market's valuation of a company relative to its earnings prospects, right? And so essentially, it's like take a divided company's price over earnings ratio over the past 12 months by projected annual future earnings growth. So basically it's showing you like, like, like how like quickly is like this, like, you know, like, is, is it, is it growing? Is it growing at the right, at the right rate, which is something people are really concerned with, right? Like when you look at stocks, like it's, it's usually not enough. Oh, did it grow? Did it grow as quickly as we thought it was going to grow? That's usually like uh, something analysts are very concerned about, right? Because if you see like decelerating growth or accelerating growth, it indicates like a trend, you know, uh, it's like, okay, like maybe the stock is slowing down. And so, and because like, you know, stock valuations are tied to the expectations of future growth, right? It's like how quickly right. do you get and, there. And where do those expect, I mean, the expectations, like there's, there's people that work on wall street. Um, a lot of analysts that's that their entire job is to basically look at a company and assess, like, this is how much we think it will grow over the next year. Right. And they, they, well, I, yeah, and that's, that, yeah, that's why I say it's, a, it's, you know, it's an art and a science, right? right. Because like, Somebody could look at Tesla, for example, right? Tesla is like a really famous example of a company with insane, like an insane P ratio, right? Like, I don't know it off the top of my head, but if you can imagine, right, like based off like Tesla's P ratio and their valuation. It's, it's 46, 46 today. So, and, and compared to what, like, what is like Ford's P ratio? Ford's PE ratio. Right. Ford's <laughs> PE ratio is seven, seven. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So like, they both make fucking cars, right? Like, like, like. It's, right, Tesla they, it's, something it's, a, hard, it's a hardware company. It's a car yeah. company. Tesla is not a software company, right? It's, yeah, a, so, it's a cool yeah, car company. So, like, when, if you know, so like, th this is like what we're talking about, right? Like, I don't know what Tesla's stock price is off the top of my head. I don't know what Ford's stock price is off the top of my head. But when you say Tesla has a P ratio of forty six and Ford has a P ratio of seven, right? That forty six is a much higher. Um, a much higher expectation of like future growth for the company uh, because the price is so much higher. The stock price is so much higher than the, the earnings of the company. Right. Yeah. And, and that's like one way to say like, okay, like, like, you know, investors, analysts, you know, the stock market has a really high expectation. This company is going to grow. Uh, and then they say it's going to grow like, Oh, you know, because for a variety of reasons, right. This is where the, like the art and the science come in. You can, oh, go, you know, you can go read these market reports, right? I mean, JP Morgan puts out yeah. like, expectations and market reports and and um yeah, yeah nvidia is a 66 their price to earnings ratio and yeah. um like apple for reference is 28 um you know meta is like 31 so i mean 66 right it's like double what meta is and meta is like growing yeah. a lot um i mean the, the crazy thing the crazy thing to like think about with fine like to think about with nvidia is one of the reasons their stock is up so much, like they were expected to grow. Um, you know, if your stock, if you grow 
according to what Wall Street thinks you will do. So like if NVIDIA would have grown their profits, you know, 50%, which is insane, their stock price would have dropped. Um, yep. They 2.7x their revenue as a as a a $20 billion company. Like, yeah. And it's, it's, ne it's never just enough. Like the, like we look like the top line numbers and the bottom line numbers, like top line, like revenue, bottom line, uh, you know, profit. Right. Like they're all, you know, analysts will like delve into like, okay, like what elements of the company grew at like which speed. Right. You know, yeah. like, and, and it's like, you know, like where are like the key growth areas. Right. Because like certain areas of the company could be like more critical to growth in the future. Um, and so they'll, they'll become very concerned about stuff like that. And it's like, is the growth in line with what we expect, et cetera. And if you ever listen to these like earnings calls, you know, analysts will be like, Hey, thanks for diving in. You know, no, we just, you know, we saw a little softness in the blah, blah, blah. And the, you know, whatever sector or whatever segment of the company is CapEx doing X, Y, and, you know, like, the, like that, like these are the sort of questions they'll ask, right. you know, the CFO and the CEO, normally the CFO, right. Right. Or yeah, or if it's like a growth area, they'll be like, you, you know, COO or like, well, like whoever the fuck's in charge of it is who they'll be like addressing it to. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, the, the point being, you know, you can go look at all these, um, you know, Sonny, who, by the way, Sonny, uh, he's finishing his raise. He will be on next week. He already has a post that we were texting about today. Oh, um, good. So good, good. Sonny, Sonny will be back next week. He's finishing his, his series A raise um so congratulations to actuate for that that's like a big big moment for a founder to actually you know get to the series a because it means means you have uh a good track yeah. record, right yeah. you have you have grown your revenue but like sunny was talking he was like man if i if i 2.7x my revenue year over year like investors will come give me money as mm -hmm. a startup right <laughs> like making making like seven figures of revenue. Yeah, because you because you because you show you have growth in the market. And right. It's okay. And it's like, you know, you can eventually become more efficient later and generate right. free cash flow, you know, which is like the it's the assumption, right? Maybe it's not so much the assumption anymore, but but invest you know, in VCs, investors, they just like to see growth, period. Right. Right. They 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 say like the triple, triple, double, double, right? That's like the YC. It's like you should grow like like post series A, I think it's like, you know, three hundred percent or three X, three X, like First year, three x second year, double fourth year, double fifth year. Nvidia almost tripled their growth as like a very mature company, and they were not fulfilling demand. So absolutely mm -hmm. insane! Congratulations to any vets that like took an Nvidia full time offer ten years ago because they're. I know. I mean, can you can you can you imagine? And it's just like some of this stuff is just luck, right? Some yeah. some some of it is just you know like if. I mean, 10 years ago, there was probably some guy, um, you know, in an apartment right around me, some, someone that was like at Wharton took some job at like a hardware company, right. Making video game chips that they were like, yeah, this is like a fine, this is like a good job, right. Yeah. Good job into tech. You know, they're giving me like 50 K equity a year. <laughs> now they're probably worth like 20 million, 25 million. And they never. If I, I think I saw if you invested a thousand dollars in Nvidia ten years ago, it, it'd be worth like one point three million today. Um, so I, I, I want. Yeah, I, if you invested, don't, don't if you invested a thousand. No, I, I just found it. If you invested a thousand dollars in Nvidia five years ago, your investment would have increased by an eye-watering one thousand and fifteen percent and be worth around seventeen thousand. If oh. you had invested a thousand in Nvidia ten years ago 
your investment would now be worth 150,000. So take that by a factor of 10, right? You invest $10,000. Not, 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 like, not like a crazy amount of money, right? No, 10,000, like, you know, yeah. that's <laughs> like, you, you could have easily done that. I mean, my wife would like have yelled at me, but uh, invest 10,000 in NVIDIA 10 years ago, you'd have 1.5 million. And, um, you know, if you would invest 100,000, like you'd be... 100,000 you would have now 11 million dollars you'd be you could retire um yeah and there's probably some like mba grads that like $10,000 is well below what you'd be getting for equity grants so there's probably some mba grad that took a a like program manager job at nvidia well, it just it just, it just depends on how much risk you want to expose yourself to single yeah. risk right you know so you know congrats to whoever's listening if you did uh take that role and you want to come on the pod and like talk about how much money you've made um please and do why, you, why you're yeah still yeah yeah why you're still working um i guess because you hope that your 25 million will grow into 50 million i guess um which it could but um the last one uh the cape ratio did you talk about that yeah. one yeah, the cape the cape ratio, right? So this one's actually super important and one that you'll hear a lot of folks talk about. I don't think it's well understood. It is the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, and it was derived by a guy named Robert Schiller, who is a Nobel Prize winning economic uh, economist, right? And what it does is you calculate. It's calculated by dividing a stock's current price with its average inflation adjusted earnings from the previous ten years. And so, what? What, what folks love, love to do, right, when it comes to finance, right, is they love to have, like, some sort of CAGR, you know, like, sort Com of, like... Compound annual growth rate, right? Yeah. Over, like, over like, the last 10 years, how much have we grown? Yeah, on, an, annual, on, a, on average. On average, right? Because you have, like, with, with, you know, like, growth rates, stocks, et cetera, you'll have, like, big dips, you'll have big gains, right? And so you, you need to find a way to basically, like, average that out over time. Right. And see, like, what is the actual like growth rate over like uh, a defined period of time? And this is this 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 is essentially what the Cape uh, ratio is trying to do, right? Um, and so the advantage for it is that it corrects it, it corrects for extreme good times and bad times, and it smooths out periods, you know, where there is like it, you know, kind of like black swan type events, like say like a housing bust in two thousand eight, or when there's like an unusually like strong uh you know economy that makes like the stock it makes stocks like go up really high for some reason um you know post-recession recoveries you know where weak earnings make stocks look expensive um so that is uh you know so it says it's typically this model is used to value cyclically sensitive companies such as banks and those in the mining and oil and gas industries because their outlooks are influenced by consumer supply and demand and economic growth right so uh, that's, that's another model that, you know, an analyst would use to basically say, oh, okay, you know, like, how do we compare, you know, company A to company B, like, how's it doing, you know, historically, you know, how's it doing like relative to its past performance, et cetera. Right. Uh, so yeah, these are all like interesting ways to like, you know, d d look deeper, right? Like the price to earnings one is always going to be the easiest one folks talk about. Like that's probably the closest. It's to the easiest to understand too, right? Yeah. You take the price, yeah. you divide by how much it earns, and yeah, I mean, it's just like you know, like yeah, it, it's 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 the closest to like the on the street metric that you're right. going you're going I mean, to, to get. To put it in the simplest terms, if like you think the company is going to be like out of business in a year, right? You're like, hey, whatever they earn today is the price, right? Because mm -hmm. like they're not going to exist. Um, 
if you think that they're going to continue to earn more and more and more, you're pricing in those future earnings. Yeah. So people really think NVIDIA is going to, I mean, you're basically saying I'm going to pay a lot of money for this stock because I think they're going to earn 65 times whatever they earned this year in, into the future. And, and that could be, you know, people don't want to hold a stock for 65 years. So they clearly are saying it's going to grow and it's going to become harder for the stock to grow. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, when you start to bet, if you get into NVIDIA now, maybe it continues to climb. It, it, it probably does. But well, this, like, this, yeah, this, this is the argument, like, are stocks actually cheap or are they expensive, right? And this is the argument everybody has, right. like, when the stock market, because the stock, stock market has, like, gotten, it's done very well. And people are like, okay, like, are stocks too expensive now? Or do they have room to climb higher? Like, this is all, like, this is always the argument folks have, right? Right. Is, you know. Your outlook. And, and that's why, you know, it's very, it's why it's very, very hard to create your own profile because it's like the information I mean, Sonny had a, a post on this on, on LinkedIn where he's just like, look, people that try to play the market, like you, you get, you get lucky every once in a while, right? And you buy like, it. It's like, it's like gambling. Like there's too gambling. much information, right? The, the market's, you know, you're, you're competing against some quant kid from Caltech that like, well, you're, 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 well, not only that you're competing against um, a market that has become much more efficient in yeah. the last 20 years right with yeah. the with the advent of computers and now with ai right it's going to be like any information that comes out is instantly like priced into stock in, in right. stocks it, it, it's all priced in You're right betting. yeah there's, any, no, there's no like arbitrage to be to be found um right. any person that's honest gambling. will say like i am i am gambling yeah yeah exactly right you know and um you know, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, you're going to take out a call option on something, you know, on something betting that they're going to beat earnings or something, right? And if you don't have like insider information, which is illegal and something I would never do, you know, like you, you would, uh, you know, you would, um, you know, you're essentially like, it's the same thing as going to the casino, right? And being like, yeah, let's put it on 32 or 32 black, right? And let's see what the roulette wheel does. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, right. Which, because any anyone... Like the thing is, is like now NVIDIA, right? All the analysts are going to say, look, NVIDIA can grow, like they're growing like crazy. They haven't met demand. Our expectations have risen, right? They better 2X their earnings in the next year. So if they 2X their earnings, it doesn't help the stock price, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. maybe they will 3X the earnings, right? That's, I mean, that's the the that's the bet that yeah, anyone- what, what, whatever, whatever bet you're taking, right? With these companies where there's really high expectations of future growth, you really you really need to make sure you understand like what you're getting into, right? Because the stock is very expensive already. It's like the, the future growth expectation, expectations are super high, right? And so you don't want to, you know, you don't want to buy in where it's like, okay, these guys have to crush it every single quarter for the next like five years in order for you to basically not lose money. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. you know, you might as, yeah, you might as well go to the casino. Uh, I mean, or maybe, just invest in the S and P just invest in the S &P. Right. That's, that's the argument. Right? Is, I mean, I had a, I had a class here about um, asset management. The, the professor just said, look, at the end, of the, the end of the class, it was kind of a dismay. It was very interesting to, to figure out like how stock prices, you know, how the market calculates stock prices, how you understand, what a company's worth, all these different metrics. But at the end of the class, he's just like, look, you know, I've, I'm, I'm teaching this class. I understand this at a granular level. I've tried to play the, I actively play the stock market and annualized over the last 20 years. I've, I don't beat the S and P because yeah. there's just too much information out there. You know, I mean, 
I think I, I, you know, I, I really highly, highly, highly encourage, especially veterans, take as many finance classes as you can take. Just, just, just so you can like, just like the conversation we had, just so you can understand it, you know. And at the end of the day, you'll probably come back to the same, you know, conclusion we had is that you can't beat the market, but at least you'll be more informed and you'll understand it. And you won't, you know, you won't, you'll have shined a light in uh, an area that's pretty important. Um, yeah. and you'll, you'll, you'll understand like risk a little better. And I think you'll also understand like when you're evaluating like a job offer from a company, right. And they're going to pay you in stock. And be like, what is the level of risk I'm signing up here for? Right. Uh, yeah. You can, you can analyze. I mean, that is a, that is something that, that, that I think it's important that you're saying is it's not just about understanding, you know, uh, if I'm going to go and start playing the market, because I, I think it, I think betting on the S and P is the best bet you can make. Um, you will get job offers with equity and you should evaluate that stock and be like, is this stock going to grow? Right. Yeah. Because you're, because you're now, you're now exposing yourself to non-diversified yeah. risk. Right? It's, it's the variable is your company. It's as if you were buying, you know, call options in that company. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, so. a lot of these jobs, I mean, we were just talking about an Amazon uh, job, uh, they offer about 150,000 base and 150,000 in equity per year, right? That's not like a one-time bonus. That means every year you're making, you know, your total compensation is 300,000. 150,000 of that, you don't get. Like that goes into an account. And if the Amazon stock grows when it vests, like you get the growth, but it only vests 5% year one. This is for Amazon post-MBA. It vests 15% year two. That's pretty... I mean that's incredibly low, right? The, the incentive is like, do not leave Amazon. Yeah, but like they they pay they pay you in cash. Right, they do pay you cash. Right, they do pay you cash. Um, they, they, the, the vesting schedules is 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 is, is 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 pushed forward. So you have to kind of look at that and be like, you know, for Amazon, you're like, okay, I'm probably going to at least be able to say I'm making one hundred and fifty thousand, and like it's in a savings account, right? And it might grow to like one hundred and seventy five thousand, right? Like, like we said with Nvidia, if you would have taken that Nvidia job ten years ago you know, you're now worth 25 million. But if you think your company, like if you go to a company and you're like, man, this public company stock's been dropping, like they made me this sweet offer of like, you know, $200,000 in stock. <laughs> their, their, their stock has been dropping like a rock. That 200,000 by the time it vests might be 30,000. So it is something to consider when you're looking at these offers, right? That's not. Yeah. That's not cash. So, yeah. so no, super, super, super interesting stuff for sure. Yeah, so um, NVIDIA is the hottest stock. Be careful if you go buy it. And um, hopefully people, you know, if you're interested in this, there's a great Wall Street Journal article. Um, and you can just go online and research, you know, stock valuation uh, methods. There's but, just YouTube or something. But... Yeah, there's a lot out there. Um, last last piece to wrap up for, for those currently at their MBAs, um, like myself, well, not me, because this is well past recruiting season for consulting, um, and I'm not going into consulting. But for those that are um, en entering into an MBA or maybe are you know, contemplating their job offer into consulting, weighing it against other just-in-time opportunities, um, which for those of you who are not familiar with MBA recruiting, a lot of firms, both startups and mature and uh, mature companies, will recruit just-in-time, quote-unquote, right? So two months out from the hiring date. Um, and sometimes consultants will get cold feet and they'll say, man, do I really want to go be a consultant? Or maybe should I like go see if Google will hire me? And 
if I get a job at Google, maybe I go there instead of being a consultant. So Kyle, you meant you, uh, you had a, a guest this week on the week we sit rep that wrote a, a pretty big indictment of consultants. Um, <laughs> why don't we still, why don't we start out? You were a consultant. So obviously it had some value to you, but what is the upside of consulting? I mean, why would, why should someone consider being a consultant? Um, I'd say it's like three areas, right? The, the first is, um, it's a very powerful brand. It's a, in the corporate community, it's kind of like revered as like, oh, you're a consultant, right? You know, you've seen a variety of business problems. A lot of uh, jobs, a lot of roles, like we'll frequently say in, in you know, corporate roles, we're like, hey, you know, preferred prior consulting, strategy consulting, whatever, management consulting preferred. Because um, a lot of, you know, consultants leave consulting and then go into the corporate and they're, they have a well-equipped skill set of like, you know, PowerPoint, Excel, you know, stakeholder needs like they're smart they can do analysis uh, so it's like one aspect second aspect is that in, in general you get to see a lot of like different companies during your tenure as a consultant right um so you get exposure to a lot of different like processes and like ways of doing business and thought ideas right and you kind you of know, you kind of push off the decision of what do i want to do right i think that's yeah, what it's kind of like about. it's kind of like residency for mbas um right, you know, right. You know, yeah uh yeah. Then the, the you know the third portion um, is that uh, you know you can develop a great network, you can develop relationships with clients, right? They're good exit opportunities, right? So there's generally like if if a consulting firm was going to sell you on on like on coming to work there, those would be like the three things they would tell you uh, because they know like the turnover rate for for their junior consultants are pretty high, um, and so like generally That's... like a consulting company will hire, you know, X number of MBAs, throw them against the wall and see who sticks and, and basically last. And, and a lot of them, I mean, now it's a lot of people get, get pipped or performance, you know, get a performance improvement plan, which is basically like you're told, go look for Well, I mean, all, all, all consulting firms have had like, you know, they have like an attrition model where they're like, okay, you know, X number of people are going to quit in their own. We're going to politely ask, you know, X number of people to leave um etc uh, and yeah it's increased lately because of just there's not as much demand they over like any every other industry they overhired now they're trying to correct so what what is the value add if a partner came to you at your place of uh employee and said i want to i want to you know sell mckinsey's book or deloitte's book what would their value prop be you know to a tech you work at a tech company why would mckinsey come and or Deloitte, or, or I mean, EY, right? They, you know, for for they, you know, it depends on what like role you're in and like what you're trying to do. But they could say anything like, "Hey, you know, we, if you're looking to like validate a new strategy, or if you're looking to explore a new strategy, or if you have some sort of problem that your current team can't handle, right? Because your current team is, you know, soaking responsibilities. Like we can come in and do the analysis and provide you like recommendations, and you know." And then the next thing would be like, and then we could sell you an implementation plan to like execute those recommendations. Um, would be like one would be would be like a, a typical like consulting like plan, right? It's like, hey, we'll come and do the analysis, then we'll help you like execute the analysis. Um, then the other thing you know they do is like, oh, if you're say going through like you know like I worked in like a deals group when I was a consultant, right? So we'd help companies you know go through a merger, or spin off, you know, they're looking to sell themselves, right? And so there could be, hey, you know, you can come do due diligence on a, you know, on an asset or, you know, business unit you're trying to sell or 
um, and help us understand like, you know, what are, you know, the, uh, you know, what, what are, what are the, like the costs that could be like, you know, minimized, right. Or taken away or what, like, what would like the future operating model look like, right. And we could like represent that in like a, you know, a, qual a quality of earnings report or, you know, a, a financial model we were looking to like, you know, like, Hey, if you're going to spin off this, this part of this company, right. Like here's what it's like run, 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 run rate costs would be. There's a lot uh, of, um, there's a, the, one interesting thing. One of my friends that worked in private equity said that one reason that a lot of private equity funds, um, will like to use consultants is because you can have you know, what's called ad backs when you sell, right? So you, you basically have consultants come in and do a bunch of work that an employee really should do, right? So if you buy this, this company, if another private equity fund buys the company, um, you know, you're, you might have to get some employees to do those work uh, or those jobs. But because you had a consultant do it, you can basically say, look, those, yeah, costs, it's, it's, those it's, costs don't exist. We're going to add back those costs because they're not permanent. And that will actually increase the profitability of the company, you know, hypothetically, because you've added back. Those yeah. You know, you have costs. like, you're just, you're just an EBITDA because you remove one-time costs, right? right? You see like recurring costs, right? Are something you can predict in the future, right? But one-time costs are like, oh, we can add those back, right? So the EBITDA, you know, the adjusted EBITDA, which is kind of like a profitability, number, right? It's, it's, it's like higher. it's like higher, and so it'll increase the multiple and therefore the sale, right? You know, um, and it's also something consultants come and analyze too when they are doing due diligence on a uh, in right. private, private equity. Private equity will come and say, or to you know, BCG has their their pipe, um, Bain has their peg, their private equity group. They you know, they, they basically say, my, you know, my friends in private equity are all very, um, uh, they, they always joke about consultants coming in and like making a hundred client calls to assess, you know, client performance, um, while the private equity analysts do like the real work. Um, although, you know, I've, I've talked to people that are at, that are now in private equity. They're like, uh, oh, that's kind of the, that's, that's a, a yeah, they all, they all, they all talk shit in each other, but yeah. Right. So like there's a variety of like situations that consultants can come in. Right. And so the article that my friend wrote, uh, you know, was basically just frustrated saying that like consultants come in, they're trying to sell work, they don't fully understand, they're trying to solve problems they don't fully understand, you know, because like some of these problems can be very deep, they can be very complex, operationally complex, right? And, you know, like some slick partner will come in and say like, oh, hey, you know, like we can solve these problems for you. And what, and what they eventually do is they do like surface level recommendations without understanding the, you know, extent and nature of the problem, right? And then... You know, executive right. how, does, how does consulting make money, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you have to look at the incentive structure of anything. Yeah, they, they, it's like we need to continually solve problems, right? So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, he was just, you know, very frustrated because he felt like they've come in and like, you know, ex-consultants will end up in leadership positions where they may be like, over, you know, in over their head and their natural inclination is like, well, we should hire some consultants to analyze this, right? And it's just this like never-ending cycle, of, you know, uh, a, a fuckery where you know people are trying to you know like like recommendations you know the recommendations to recommendations right right because you know. if you look at the incentives they just don't align right that's kind of what what the cynic would say is like look we have these incentives the incentive is to sell work you know if you're a client services your incentive is to just create more work because that's the only way you get paid there's no as far as i know there's 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 no consulting contracts that include um like success fees, you know, yeah. success fees, right? It's, it's like you sell work. And so the incentive is to create more work, not to find success. Well, so, you know, you know, I, I would say depending on the project, right. Some, some consulting, you know, 
Yes, that's some a very cynical view. Yeah. Some companies that hire consultants, right? I mean, in, in my, you know, my role was like in like the, the deal space, right? They view them as basically an, an insurance policy to make sure like whatever is going on is correct because, you know, can, like say you work in like the deals group of a consulting company, right? Or a consulting firm. You have a lot of exposure to like these these large strategic, to strategic events. You've seen a lot of, you know, different permutations of like problems, right? Whereas that the company that's going through this strategic event is, you know, the executives only see it like a few times in their career, right? So like bringing experts, experts, right, to, um, you know, who have seen this a lot, right? And the experts are generally the, the, you know, the partners or the, you know, associate partners, directors, et cetera. Uh, and then they have their, their junior staff execute on the day-to-day -day and they supervise them, so yeah um I mean, yeah so it just it just it just depends right i don't know i I've, I've i've been on projects where like literally the client was like thank you so much for doing this it was amazing we don't know how we would have done this without you then i've been on projects where like, the client literally wants to fucking kill you because they hate you you know somehow yeah. partner sold the work to some c-suite executive right and their underlings like don't agree with it and that's like a dynamic that you face as a consultant and it's also a dynamic you face out in the corporate world as a you know just working a day-to-day -day job where you're you know dealing with you know hey this initiative and people may not agree with it you know whatever or you you're trying to get something done people don't agree with it so it's um that you know that's why the skill set is valuable even if it is a little nebulous yeah uh, it's so. i mean a lot of businesses yes like you said consultants will do really good work and consultants work their asses off um, I mean, my friend that my friend just left BCG, he was only there for like 12 months. Um, and as part of this, like, you know, they raised the bar, which really just meant, you know, layoffs, but yeah, they don't want to say layoffs. Um, you know, that said BCG treated him well on the way out, right? They, they really want to make sure you get placed well, cause that's their brand. So they, um, he had, he had no animosity towards them as he left. And in fact, he was kind of thankful cause he said, look, like I worked from like eight to like 10 every night. And I worked. He's like, it wasn't like I, I sat in the three shop and like kind of, you know, you know, kind of, you know, right. shot the shit right. with guys and like talked to talk to people and like would go and sit at Taco Bell. Right. He's like, I would like be deep into, uh, you know, expert interviews, analyzing data, like doing running SQL queries for clients and like working. He's like, it was it was work for like five days straight. Um, he's like, you know, 60 hours, 60 hour weeks are no joke. Um, and so he's now working at a tech company, working like 40 hours a week. Um, and he really likes his life, but you know, it's, it's hard work and he's, you know, there's a lot of companies, like you said, where consultants can add a lot of value, but there's, there's also, especially right now, I think there's a lot less work because a lot of these companies are tightening their belts and that yields a lot of, you know, what your third, 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 third party spend is something that gets cut quickly in a, in a tight environment. So, right. So partners will sell what they can because they need to make money and, you know, you can't blame them for that. So, um, yep. yeah, I don't want to discourage anyone, you know, from considering consulting as a career, but if you, if you know what you want to do, I think that there's definitely a case for doing that, right? If you know, you want to be in healthcare, like go look at LDPs. If you know, you want to be in tech, like, you know, try hard mm -hmm. to get into a tech role. Um, if you go to, if you go to consulting, you very well may do, two years worth of industrial projects and be very hard pressed to find a job in tech or healthcare. So, you know, consider that before you, before you do take a job there. Yep. For sure. So, all right. Uh, Kyle, anything else you want to announce before we, um, we sign off today? Nope. 
I don't, I don't, I don't got anything. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, everyone look out for um, continuing YouTube video series. We have some good interviews with people that have done prep for consulting and for banking that are vets that have just recently gotten out. So we'll have some some prep series if you're interested in exactly how to prep for these careers. Um, other than that, um, we'll talk to you next week. Cool. All right. Later, everybody. And I'm not talking about some $400,000 a year working Wall Street stiff flying first class and being comfortable. I'm talking about liquid. Rich enough, have your own jet. Rich enough not to waste time. <laughs>